I'm Reed Martin. I'm Austin Titchener. And, and we, we are two-thirds two of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. Normally, I like to dive right into the interview for this podcast, but this one has a bit of a history to it. You see, this episode of Geek Out is almost 10 years in the making. I started listening to podcasts back in about 2008, thanks to working a job that was basic data entry. I honestly don't know when I first started listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company's podcast, but I do know that I went through their complete backlog in 2011 and have been a regular listener ever since. Additionally, I had been a fan of the RSC for a while. I initially came across their first show, The Complete Works of Shakespeare Abridged, back when it was a possible contender for a show I was helping produce back in 2003. I loved the script, but we were needing something with a bigger cast, so I set it aside and promptly forgot about it. Flash forward a few years, and a friend of mine who knew I liked Shakespeare and comedy sent me the DVD of that show as a birthday present. It was then that I discovered that the company was still around and promptly dove headfirst into being a fan. Since then, I've corresponded with Austin Titchener of the RSC a couple of times, once when I wrote a review of their podcast for Casey Stage, but also just general comments on some of the topics he talked about. Everything from commentary on time travel to telling them about the concept of the Uncanny Valley to thanking them for introducing me to another podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. Meanwhile, back in 2010, while I was volunteering with Casey Stage, I decided I wanted to try producing my own theater podcast. I named it Stage Savvy after the column I was writing regularly for the magazine and got my good friend Jen Morris to be a co-host. My inspiration for the setup of that podcast was from a lot of sources, but mostly the Stuff Mom Never Told You and the Reduced Shakespeare Company's podcasts. When I decided to get back into audio production in 2013, I contemplated reviving Stage Savvy, but by then I had been somewhat burned out on covering theater, and my writing focus had changed to a more geeky realm. Additionally, while producing Stage Savvy, I had regular access to a recording studio, and I lost that when I moved to Los Angeles. I wasn't quite sure how to go about producing a co-hosted podcast at the time. After a long think, I decided to start a new podcast instead. This one. I've joked on multiple occasions that Austin is the honorary godfather of Geek Out, because while he's not directly responsible for the podcast, he definitely has been a huge influence on it. So, when I heard that they would be in Los Angeles to do their latest play, William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged, I knew that I had to interview him. We emailed back and forth, and I managed to get a precious 30 minutes of their time prior to that evening's production, which I had tickets for. I admit, I was actually a bit nervous about this interview, and while I was waiting to talk to them, I literally felt my hand shaking. The last time I felt this was when I interviewed Bruce Campbell at Paleyfest. But he quickly made me feel welcome, and the interview was launched. I talked to both Austin and Reed Martin about being an actor and playwright, how things have changed when they first started, and the various details of working together and doing comedy. Now, you guys are both writers, actors, directors, producers. You've pretty much done everything. You also have clowning. I always like asking origin stories. So tell me the first time that for, for you writing specifically, you decided to put pen to paper. It didn't have to be necessarily in terms of a professional manner, but when you, that point where you realized this is something that you wanted to do. 
boy, when I realized it was something I wanted to do, that was, I think, when I went off to college. I did puppet shows when I was in kindergarten. I wrote stories and poems in third grade. I remember in seventh grade English sitting down to write an episode of MASH. I think I got three quarters of a page. I went, yeah, this is hard. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until I think I went to grad school and I had an opportunity to get my MFA in acting or directing. And I was given a really great opportunity and a lot of money to go be an actor from one university. And I went, yeah, but I really want to go off and be a director at this other place. And that was what, sort of when I realized, wait, I want to be more than just an actor. I want to create pieces too. I want to work on other people's material, not just act somebody else's material, but actually create my own. And so that was the beginning of that for me. I did Victor Borga impressions <laughs> in in nursery school. I couldn't play the piano, but I pounded on it. And and fell off a stool? Fell off a stool. <laughs> something to do with a stool. And, and then I'd stop and tell jokes. We used to do Martin family carnivals in the front yard they had did carnivals for jerry's kids we did it for the martin kids so yeah and we would do puppet shows i guess the first thing i remember writing getting good feedback i wrote the continuing adventures of captain idiot in the fifth grade and that was fun and then for my senior project at cal uh, along with Kevin Ruff, I wrote a thing called Generic Play about the rough and tumble world of professional table tennis and got good feedback on that. It was hysterical. I wasn't in it, but I saw it. It was hysterical, and it, it has inspired at least two things that I've written, a, a kid's show about the first Olympics, and also it inspired our show, The Complete World of Sports Abridged. So what about acting, writing, and all that draws you? Why that versus, you know, being an accountant, for example? <laughs> well... I was a professional baseball umpire in the summer of 1980 in the minor leagues, um, and then I got into theater just at about that same time, and I realized it was not so fun having people cursing at you and kicking dirt on your shoes and spitting tobacco juice on your shirt. I don't know, but I could do a show, and suddenly people were laughing and applauding, and I go, hmm, this seems a better choice. <laughs> I, you know, for me, it was something I always, I loved to do, like, since elementary school, and it was the one thing that I felt like I could do the best of the things that I had an interest in. I thought I would, you know, in the early 80s, I thought I'd leave college and go on to law school, as so many people did, and my dad, thankfully, who had been to law school for a year, and then a JAG lawyer in the Navy went, don't go to law school, you'll hate law school, go do something you love, and I went, okay, so that was an MFA in directing at Boston University, and I just... You know, I wish there's probably some other things I could do, but I don't think there's as much I can do as well. And then uh, let's kind of gear towards uh, the current show. I, I hate asking writers where you get your ideas because as a writer myself, I know it depends on the show and all that. So let's focus on this show specifically. And I know you talk a little bit about in the podcast itself, but for those who have may not have heard that, give me a brief, you know, kind of the inspiration as to how this idea came about. Well, this show particularly has a very specific origin story. We were given a private tour of the vaults at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., and because I do my weekly podcast, I brought my recording equipment along with me, and at the end of the tour, near the end, my wife asked if they were doing a Da Vinci Code movie about Shakespeare, what would the treasure be? And they, without hesitation, said, oh, well, a manuscript in his own hand, and such a thing doesn't exist, and and maybe we'll find one, but maybe probably we won't, and we were performing at the Kennedy Center at the time, and I was telling Reed this, and we went, and we realized, oh my gosh, we should write that. What would happen if you found William Shakespeare's long-lost play? And what if it was his first play when he was a young writer who had genius but no craft? And what, because of that, what if it was 100 hours long and we needed to abridge it and reduce it? And what if it was a mashup of all his famous characters and famous speeches? So it really, it really took its entire form that in that sort of eight-hour period from the tour to the show that night. 
and that was in 2010. To the world premiere. It was eight hours. It was from eight the, hours. Yeah. It was eight hours. And then we said, well, this is going to write itself. And then we discovered, sadly, it doesn't write itself. And we had to write it in 2015 and workshop it that summer and do some more rewrites in the fall. And then we premiered it ourselves back at the Folger Shakespeare theater at the Folger Library and when that was perfect that it came full circle a mere six years later. (laughs) Now in terms of working together you've obviously written stuff together before so obviously you're used to it now but what would you say is the uh, how is your process different from when you're writing on your own? Oh that's an interesting question. Well writing for the Reduced Shakespeare Company there's considerations like where do we tour? We tour in the U.S., we tour in the U.K. Will it appeal to audiences? Will it appeal to people who run theaters? Maybe most importantly, does the idea appeal to us? Is it something we think is interesting and want to spend several years of our lives on? And and then do we, you know, and then sometimes there's a good topic, but we don't really have an idea of how to go about it. So that's how we work together. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, the great thing about working together is that we could write something down and, and send it to the other and, and go, well, I think this is something. <laughs> what do you think? But the, also the great thing about writing for the British Shakespeare Company is that we're in the incredibly fortunate position of knowing that our, our, our show will be produced someplace. We don't always know where or when, but we know it'll be up on its feet. And so, and we have a great network of actor friends and writers, other writer friends who can look at it or listen to it or, you know, read it and and give us their thoughts about it, which is also helpful. And we've also just been performing on stage long enough to know, to have a pretty good sense, not foolproof sense of what's going to be funny of whether it's going to be interesting. You know, then we put it up in front of people or on a stage reading or something and and then for, sometimes we find out, whoops, we were wrong about that moment, or uh, we misconceived this entire act. But by and large, you know, we, we you know, I've, the only time I've ever studied writing, I was in the BMI Music Theater Workshop in New York City for two years, and it was, it presupposes that the art of writing musical theater can be taught, and I'm on the fence about that still. But, but, but it was, I didn't really learn to write songs for the theater until I, started performing them for the Reduce Shakespeare Company. You know, a song has to earn its weight, you know, and it needs to be stage-worthy. And, um, you know, you learn that so much by doing it, not being in a classroom, by getting it up in front of people. It was interesting collaborating on Pop-Up Shakespeare because it wasn't Austin and me alone. We also had uh, Jenny Maisel's The Artist. So the dynamics were a little different. She wasn't giving us too much input, I don't think, about what we wrote. No, and she had a lot of great, funny ideas of her own, and she honestly was like a, well, it was. It was true, a third collaborator. And it was interesting because we write our shows for adults. They're suitable for kids, depending on the age of the kids and the parents. But this was writing about Shakespeare for kids. In a way, it's kind of the opposite. It's for kids, but hopefully interesting for adults. And it was interesting to have an editor saying, okay, we need a 103 word description (laughs) of Titus Andronicus. That's how much room you have. Right. right? And then you write it and they go, well, no, that's not really appropriate for 11 year olds. You know, can you scrub this a little bit? And so, yeah, so that process was a little different, but that was fun too. How odd is it to see, like, have you gone to like high school productions that you don't know anybody and seen your shows? And if so, how odd is that? It's odd to go. Sometimes they're great. We've hired people. And then sometimes (laughs) they're just like, (laughs) but we're so busy and we know the shows so well. I mean, I root for, it's like at an audition, I'm rooting for everybody to do well. And sometimes you go, just read the stage direction. We we spelled this out really clearly and you you opted to ignore it and it doesn't work as well. (laughs) 
and when I see, I mean, it's fantastic. I'm always thrilled when somebody's doing our script. But then the times I've seen it, I'm going, why would you act like that? Why would you, why would you act any differently in this play than you would if you were in a drama? That's my big beef. You know, it's my, it's my feeling about comedy generally. You know, people condescend to comedy and don't play it with the seriousness and import I think that it deserves. And that's not just for our scripts. That's for a lot of shows. Well, and that leads into a question I was going to ask earlier. The stereotype is, you know, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Comedy is much harder to do than drama. I'm a full believer of that. Do you guys agree? Um, yes, I mean, yes, except comedy in, in another way is easier because the response is binary. They're either laughing or they're not laughing. And in a drama, they could be sitting there quietly for 90 minutes and you go, oh, they're loving it. No, they're asleep. You can't tell. You know, so in comedy at least, but this is another thing Reed and I learned in all the years we've been writing together, there's no point in arguing about whether something's funny. You put it up on stage and if it gets a laugh, it's funny. And if it doesn't, it isn't. And there's no arguing with people about how they missed the joke. They didn't find it funny and you didn't tell it right or it's a dumb joke and let's cut it and move on. I've heard Tina Fey argue that comedy is harder. I think they're both hard. But she says, you have to have your objective and your obstacle and your urgency. And then on top of it, there's that musicality. There's a rhythm. So you, that's an added layer that you have to play in sort of that, that dual mindset of playing it urgently and truly, but also being aware of the laugh and writing that out. So I think comedy is certainly less appreciated than drama. If it isn't harder, it's, it's less appreciated. Speaking of seeing other people do the shows, I was adjudicating a high school drama competition about a year ago, and this high school group was doing a short version of the complete works of William Shakespeare, abridged by Jess Winfield, Daniel Singer, and Adam Long. And I was adjudicating the show, and they didn't know that I, you know, that I was part of the Redo Shakespeare Company. And they did a really good job. I, I think they ended up winning, the, you know, the one-act comedy competition. But in the second round, they knew who I was, and they were like, ah. <laughs> but they, they did really well. Now, um, for better or for worse, you guys have been doing this for a little bit. What would you say has changed, the biggest change, doing something like this now versus when you guys first started? From a business perspective, it's very, very different. It used to be, you'd, you know, you'd, they'd put an ad in the paper. Well who reads the paper anymore. So in terms of marketing, that's really changed. We used to have to put together hard press kits and ship them all over the country. And of course, now they're all downloaded. Austin does a weekly Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. That wasn't even anything that existed when we started doing this in the late 1930s. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what else has changed. Well, I mean, the uh, I mean, it's also just, it's a, it's a much more crowded marketplace out there for your entertainment dollar. You know, we have a lot more competition than we used to, including, including people who have been inspired by us, you know, who are also out there doing comic versions of serious things. We're the one and only, but still, uh, I mean, one thing that's, ha we've, we've gotten better at it, which is nice. I mean, everything that we reduce, every play that we write is a different beast, but we've been doing it long enough to know now not to uh, sweat the small stuff. You know, if we're not precious about stuff that we write and if it doesn't work, it goes, you know, it, again, it needs to, it needs to make its own case and fend for itself out there. And if it doesn't work, we, we write something else. So that's been good. It's a lot less fraught emotionally. <laughs> Hello, I'm Patria Burchard. I'm an audiobook narrator and the voice of Ryoko in Tenchi Muyo. I'm here geeking out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. I think you should do that too. You can find me on various social media at Angie F. Sutton. I also have a Patreon with that handle. For as little as $1 a podcast, you can support Geek Out, get the audio files a bit sooner than the rest of the world, 
and receive both transcripts and behind-the-scenes stories from all of my episodes. Don't forget to give me a review over on iTunes or Stitcher. The more reviews of this podcast, the easier other people are able to find it. Finally, you can now listen to this podcast not only on iTunes and Stitcher, but also Spotify. Links to all of these can be found on my website, angiefsutton.com. And now, back to my interview with Reed Martin and Austin Titchener, two-thirds of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Yeah, another thing that changed starting with our complete world of sports abridged is we used to be producers, actors, writers, and directors of the shows right from the beginning. And in 2010, we tried a new model with the complete world of sports where Austin and I uh, were writing and directing it, but not producing and not acting in it to start. And I, th- I think that's been a good change to just to be able to sit out, listen to the show, watch the show, take notes, do rewrites, not have to memorize them to go on that night. And so that's been a big change. And, it, and that actually started, uh, or the idea for that started when we did all the great books abridged in the early 2000s when my daughter was born, our second child. And I didn't want to be away from home as much. And so uh, one of our other actors, Michael Faulkner, stood in for me while Reed was on stage with uh, Matt Croak. And so the three of them were on stage and I'd be out front. So I would have the perspective of being out front, watching it and taking notes and going, oh, the audience feels this, the audience feels that. And Reed was on stage with the perspective of I'm an actor and it feels like, uh, it feels like I'm working way harder than I need to here. What if we shorten? Da, 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 da. So that was an interesting combination of the perspectives. And then we were able to then fully apply that kind of method to, uh, to sports. Now, um, this is specifically, well, for both of you, but you specifically, since you're a teacher, um, what is the one piece of advice you would give to somebody wanting to enter theater, either as a writer, director, producer, whatever? Do something else. <laughs> It's a hard living. It's a cliche, right? I had one of my very early acting teachers. I said, I think I like this. I might want to do this. And he asked the question any reasonable teacher would ask, which is, is there anything else you think you might want to do? Because this is a very hard thing to do. It's a fun thing to do. And it's fun to do as an avocation. But um, for a living, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, I I would do whatever... I would do exactly what I've done with my own daughter, who is now a freshman at USC in the theater department. I would tell uh, any student, as I did my own daughter, don't, don't, no, this is terrible. No, you've got to do something else. You've got to do something else. And if they really, really love it, they'll ignore you. And if they they can be talked out of it, they should be talked out of it. So it was great. My daughter said, yeah, thanks, Dad. No, I'm going to be doing this. That's bad parenting. You know they're going to do the opposite of what you told them. <laughs> you were making that happen yes. and modeling it. You yes. and Dee modeling a well, showbiz life. True. But that's, yeah, this is true. So my daughter saw me and my wife, you know, surviving in showbiz. And so she's going in with her eyes much more wide open. Whereas my parents, you know, weren't smart enough to go, no, that's a terrible idea. They said, yes, honey, whatever, whatever you want to do. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Similar, but slightly different. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself as you were first coming out, what would you tell yourself? Hmm, let me have a think about that. Yeah, I guess I would tell myself to just go make a lot of money in your early 20s. Uh, Bank it. uh, Don't spend it. Also, just don't be afraid to be more ruthless and shameless because those are the people that really seem to succeed. That's our law firm. Ruthless and shameless. (laughs) Yeah, but then then they fired Ruth. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's why they had to change the name. Yeah, yeah. 
with regards to the podcast, you started it back when you still kind of had to explain what a podcast was, although you still somewhat have to. <laughs> what made you decide a podcast versus all the other things? Well, I throw all credit and mostly the blame to Matthew Croak, who toured with us for many years and said, you've got to get in on this. You've got to do this. And, and he argued and he was right. It was a way for us to be present in people's minds in both cities and countries where we weren't currently touring. It was an opportunity to, for us to create content every week. And at first we went, oh my God, we've got to create content every week. But then as we got more comfortable with the idea of it, it we realized, no, 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 no. We just need to, you know, talk, you know, talk. And sometimes we can play some excerpts from our shows. And sometimes we can create content, but it needn't be that kind of responsibility. And once I learned how to use GarageBand and once I knew, learned how easy it was to import audio and really it's no more difficult than editing a Microsoft Word document, I went, oh no, I can do this. And I also scaled it down so it's something I can absolutely do every single week. I can get it out without fail. And I've been doing it now for 643 weeks since December of 2006. Only one episode that you had to repeat? Uh, yes, I think you're right. With only one, boy, you're good. Yes. With only, I've been listening for quite a while. You have, but with only one episode that I've repeated. And I, you're right. I don't think I have made up for it by putting on, <laughs> by putting in another episode, although I might have. I can't remember. Well, you guys did a video one once, so I'll, I'll count that as a double. Twice. Twice. And I would love to do, we would love to do more video, but that, but that's more time consuming. And this is not what we do full time. Although if anybody's out there wants to pay me to do a podcast full time, I am ready. And then out of curiosity, how far in a advance do you know what your topic is going to be for that week? I mean, I'm sure it varies from week to week, but on average. Uh, you know, uh, right now I've got about three or four in the bank. So I have, uh, so what's today as we're recording? It's Saturday. So tomorrow, Sunday or Monday morning, I'll look at the three or four I've got in the bank and go, which is the right one for this week? And so that's a nice position to be in. But there's been a couple of times where I wake up on the Monday morning, I'm supposed to post it that day and I got nothing, you know, and I'm calling Reed going, what can we talk about? What can we talk about? Or I have another friend who I'll just pester out of the blue. I said, do you have 15 minutes we can hop on Skype and we can record a conversation about something? Because I think people have, the good thing about the podcast is that they come to depend on it and they know it's something that will show up in their feed, you know, every Monday-ish, depending on what country you're in or what time zone I'm in. And then um, how much do you, tr I mean, do you have any input as to what he does? <laughs> Austin, Austin's the man. Yeah. I mean, whenever he says, yeah, can you talk? I always try to say yes. And sometimes I'm doing something like recently, I, I Brian Posehn, the stand-up comic and actor, uh, we used to drive him to Sunday school when he was a kid. He's six years younger than me. He's my brother's age. So there was a fundraiser in Sonoma. So I interviewed him and recorded that. And so, so Austin put that up as a podcast and we've done that a few times. That was a fun conversation too, because Brian Posehn's book, I think has geek or nerd in it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a great, per so it's very on topic for this podcast. <laughs> and, and theater is maybe the least geeky place to be talking about things geek. I know, there are a lot of theater geeks out there. That's true, but theater geeks who are geeks about theater, specifically, it, theater itself doesn't seem to deal with fandom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, you know, yeah. it's it's Although it's getting better. It is getting it is getting better. I think people are acknowledging that you can be a geek about anything, which is fun. But like, I, I, you know, you see more, a few more shows every now and then. I'll see a show that has got some sort of superhero inspiration or sci-fi inspiration, but not as much as I would like. I still think I've done a podcast about this before. You know, why isn't there more sci-fi theater or horror theater, genre theater? You know, and it's disappointing. I think we might be doing something our next. Our two shows from now 
might be dealing with geekdom. Well, uh, I'm eagerly awaiting for you to reach out to the theater teacher who did the production of Alien for an oh, interview. Yes. <laughs> that would be a cool. That would be a. That would be a cool idea, you know, and ve and various people that we deal that that you know I you know, like the head of the Dramatist Guild and uh, and other mucky mucks were saying, oh no, you need to put a stop to this. You need to clamp down. That was a, a intellectual property violations and copyright violations. And yes, yeah, hundred percent, all of that's true. Shouldn't do that. Still, <laughs> it was very cool exactly. and ingenious. And, and the fact that Ridley Scott gave his approval his after the fact <laughs> approval yes but like uh, the the revival and revitalization of the Brady Bunch in the movies mm -hmm. was born out of the annoyance theater doing the Brady Bunch live it was just a bunch of th young comic actors doing episodes of the Brady Bunch live on stage and that phenomenon was so popular, both first in Chicago, it went to the Kennedy Center, Center played the terrace where we have played. That prompted the studios to go, hey, maybe there's a series of movies in this. You know, and that was totally done without anybody's approval, too. So I, th I think there's something to be said for that. What was the name of the producer of the Brady Bunch? Sherwood, Sherwood Schwartz? Yeah, they yeah. eventually had to get his permission. Right. They started without permission. Right. And then I think he eventually had to get invited and get yeah. signed off on it. Yeah. And I think younger people who he knew said, you know, this is a good thing. Yeah, this yeah. is a good thing. This is a good thing. And also there's some guys we know in England who were inspired by the British Shakespeare Company, Daniel Clarkson being one of them, decided to do a two-person Harry Potter show. They called it Potted Potter. And they just did it as a fringe thing. It became bigger and bigger. And I think J.K. Rowling saw it as a fandom thing. And Warner Brothers, I think wisely, <laughs> decided, okay, we're going to let this go. We're going to let this happen. But on our, on our terms, you can only do it these months out of the year. You can't do it in this country. You can only do it in this country. But anyway, they said they, they saw it as a way to keep the franchise alive through this fan appreciation thing. Well, I mean, one of the things I, I did study was one of my advisors for my master's uh, is uh, Dr. Henry Jenkins, who he's an ACA fan. It's academic fandom. That's he studies fandom, basically. And that is definitely something that has been changing, especially over the past 10 years or so, of more and more production companies are realizing that they shouldn't be quite so solid in terms of that separation between fan created art and copyright and that they realize as you said there there's there could be money yeah. <laughs> made out of it and made off of fans and so they've been much more lenient in the past 10 years than it has been back in the days when Anne Rice would you know take down your site if you had the audacity to write fanfic about <laughs> their stuff. Now I know we're getting close to the end of our time. I want to ask you the question. I try and ask all of my interview subjects. The name of my podcast is called Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. Tagline is everyone is geeky about something. What is one thing you are currently watching, listening, reading, whatever that you've just been super excited about and have been telling everybody about? Oh gosh, there's three things I'm watching at the moment. The new TV show based on the movie What We Do in the Shadows. Documentary Now, the mockumentaries that they're doing, which are just awesome. Especially co-op. Yes. <laughs> and uh, my bride and I, we love Schitt's Creek. And what about those draw you? You know, I watch so many sitcoms and I see the laughs coming about five minutes away. And I don't see that with these three shows. And I think that's what I like. It, it makes me laugh and it's, they surprise me. And those, those three shows are, it, it's comedy played straight. It's absolutely played straight. It's not big and broad. And it's, it, these are good actors doing comedy, not bad actors doing comedy, you know? And then for you? Currently, the most current thing I've saw that I've been, been uh, raving about is Russian Doll. 
on Netflix. I'm a sucker for time travel those sorts of stories. You know, I'm much more of a Trekkie than a Warsi. So, and in fact, I just realized that people ask, what was your first encounter with Shakespeare? It used to be telling the story that it was a production of Shakespeare at American Conservatory Theater in, uh, in San Francisco. But really, it was episodes of Star Trek in the 60s, because so many titles are based on Shakespeare, so many themes. There was a traveling Shakespearean troupe that was traveling across the galaxy and hiding a murderer, you know, in one episode. And so that was my first exposure. And that, and of course, you can't spell William Shakespeare. Shakespeare without William Shatner. So, <laughs> Was there anything specific that you wanted to talk about that we haven't yet? I, I don't know. You can follow us on all the social um, media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, not so much Instagram. Austin does the weekly podcast. You can find more info at ReduceShakespeare.com. And we probably very soon, I don't know when's this airing. Is this airing? Um, hopefully in April. In April. Okay. So Shakespeare month. Yeah. So probably very soon in April or early May, we will be announcing our next stage show, probably on the podcast and definitely on the socials. So maybe in time for Shakespeare's birthday, we'll do that. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's about it. Any final thoughts? No. <laughs> it's been a blast talking to you. And now it's time for Angie Geeks Out. I'm going to go a little bit into how I decide on what to geek out about for a moment. I've now been doing the segment for 15 episodes, and as such, what I pick has evolved somewhat. At first, considering it was based on Pop Culture Happy Hour's What's Making Us Happy segment, I wanted to focus on something I had actually come across in the past month. However, when I interviewed Victoria Male in episode 39, I ended up picking something that was also related to Harry Potter, as that was one of the topics we had discussed. Additionally, this one adds in the conundrum that I know Austin and Reed will be listening. Do I want to do something that is connected to them? Maybe an audio version of the review I did of their podcast. Or maybe an audio version of my review of the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, since I heard about it through the RSC's podcast. We also briefly talked about the lack of geeky theater, and I could recommend some of the rare exceptions. There's the Los Angeles SciFest, which rumors are stating they may be back this year. The play She Kills Monsters, wherein... Dungeons and Dragons is a vital part of the plot, or even plug the play friend of the podcast Jesse Salisbury wrote called Fangirls about the misogyny in fandom. Or maybe I should do something that I would think they would enjoy. Maybe an audio version of my review of the documentary Hail Satan that I just wrote, or an audio version of my recommendation of John Finnemore's Cabin Pressure, which I think is right up Austin Sally. So, Thinking that over, I ended up deciding to do something that was both something I thought they would enjoy and theater-related. I wanted to recommend a theater webcomic that I have another connection to. Q2Q Comics, the letter Q, the number 2, and the letter Q, is a webcomic updated three times a week and is a workplace comedy-style series about the tech theater world. Written by Steve Youngkins, who I managed to interview for Stage Directions magazine in 2016, it's much in the same vein as the movie Waiting for Guffman or the television series Slings and Arrows. One of those, it's funny because it's true kind of things. The comic follows the crew of the Cheeseboro Ensemble Theater. Full disclosure that I donated to his latest Kickstarter and am now the proud owner of not only both of the books he has, but a series of stickers and the infamous Off Because a Lie t-shirt. The comic has a pretty big following in tech theater circles, and Yunkins even does presentations and has a booth at the annual conference for USITT, the organization for those in technical theater. You can read the entire back archive for free on the official website, www.q2qcomics.com. That's again the letter Q, the number two, and the letter Q, comics.com. It's a great series, and if you have any connection to theater, 
you're going to enjoy it. And that's a wrap for this episode. A huge thanks to both Austin and Reed for taking the time to let me interview them. I could have easily spent another couple of hours talking to them on a wide range of topics, and I say without any irony that this was one of the things on my interview bucket list. I still owe both of them a drink. Thanks also to actor, writer, voiceover artist, and audiobook narrator Petraea Burchard for the mid-show plug. If you missed it, she was my subject on last month's episode, number 41. Next month is a little bit up in the air. It's going to be one of two topics. I'm trying to get interviews with Marcia Powers, one of the people behind WhedonCon. Unfortunately, with WhedonCon coming up in May, she's extremely busy, so I may not be able to get a chance to interview her. If that's the case, I'll be editing the audio from when I attended the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Award for this year. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Pitnikin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.